Good morning. It's my delight to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and uh, this is um, the conclusion of Peter's uh, letter to us. And uh, I ask you again, as we have before, would you please stand with me in reverence to the Word of God as we read it this morning? From 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing, fir- standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him belongs the power forever and ever. Amen. This has been the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. You pray with me. Father, speak your word to us this morning. Pour out your spirit into our hearts in a way that brings conviction and transformation, that we are empowered more and more by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm especially delighted this morning because it seems that God's sovereignty, God's sovereign providence is on display in an amazing way this morning. Um, His message to us today from 1 Peter is right on schedule with Pentecost. How about that? Not coincidental. Again, it's a display of God's providence, God's timing in bringing us to this conclusion of Peter's letter couldn't have been more perfectly coordinated with a message on Pentecost. Peter, by the way, being the one delivering that message on Pentecost, pointing us to the glorious grace of God's power at work in our lives that makes all the difference, that makes all the difference with everything else. Like the disciples, on that day, we are to wait We are to wait where we are for the promised Holy Spirit to empower us 
He's our one source. He's our one source of power for all of life, every moment. So why is it that God often tells us to wait for Him, to be still and know that He is God, to be still and let Him fight our battles, to be our helper, to be our strength, to be our defense, to be our stronghold, our rock, our voice, to be our Redeemer and our Savior. If God is not our source of power, then who is? And what difference does that make? What difference does that make? I would say all the difference in the world. The difference in outcomes between humility and pride is bigger than anything else that Peter has been talking about throughout his letter up to this point in addressing our conduct and our sufferings and everything else that we encounter and all of the, all of the activities that we do in, in, in our inner relationships and, and in the church, all the things that we confront in the world around us, all these things are external. All these things are leading up to this summary. Everything else is outward, you see, but this speaks to the condition of the heart that produces or impacts everything else that we do or say. This summary, this conclusion that Peter has before us really sums it all up. He saved us for last, pretty much like in the Ten Commandments. You know, the last commandment is really, in a lot of ways, the one that all the other ones hang on. The first one and the last one speak to the heart. And if it wasn't for covetousness, would we really do any of those other things? The same way, if it wasn't for pride. See, where would we go? You know, everything else could be right in place. Everything else be going well. Everything else, we could maybe be doing all the right things. We could have all the gifts that we want in the church. But if pride stands in the way, we come to a dead stop. Humility is not only reflective of the depth of our faith, but is also the result of the object of our faith. It's who we trust to empower our lives that matters most. So some questions that I had in looking at this text is why? And why, why is it that God opposes the proud? See, pride is what separates us most of all from God and sets us against Him and aligns us with the very enemy of our souls without us even realizing what's going on. It captivates us before we even realize it. It sneaks in so deceptively. 
Pride is the biggest obstacle to humility. It is the primary driving force behind every temptation and sin, and it is what drives us back every time to take hold of that forbidden fruit that we should have left alone in the first place again and again and again. And it just keeps this thing going. Why would we keep repeating what got us in trouble in the first place? I think the forbidden fruit must have been a potato chip. You can't have just one. We just can't resist the temptation of self-reliance, of autonomy, of independence, of of libertarian freedom, of self-will, of self-determination, of self-worship. He knew that's where it would go. I mean, every idol that we create, it comes back to us. It doesn't matter what form it is. It could be a golden calf. It could be anything else. It could be status, whatever it is. It still comes back to us. We're making it in our own image in that sense because you see that thing that we created is out of our own pride. We created God in our own image, whatever that God may be. And so ultimately, we became our own God. Whenever pride raises its ugly head, Satan turned us against our own selves. Self became the target, and yet self also became the cause of our downfall. And an obsession with pride just keeps that destruction that Satan intended going and going and going. Peter warns us that he is stalking us. Satan keeps stalking us. Not just to cause trouble, not just to get us off target, not just to trip us up, not just to cause confusion or to cause some pain and a little bit of suffering here and there. No, he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Think about that word, devour. His intention is nothing less than absolute and total destruction. He wants to destroy the work of God. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to take everything. He wants to consume you with the same thing that consumes him, and that is this pride that stands in the way of everything good. That battle with pride is what causes the same kind of suffering that he mentions in verse 19 that he speaks of that all share in common throughout the world. Every Christian around the world shares that kind of suffering. And that is worse than any other kind of external suffering that they may be. And see, around the world... You know, there, there may be different degrees and there may be varied kinds of suffering going on externally, physically, but this is the one that he says we all share in common. 
What does he say? You see, it's the same kind of suffering. This same kind of suffering, the root of it is pride. It disables us. And it keeps us from moving forward. And then we find that the church is in a stalemate. And their lives are in a stalemate. So this suffering is an internal, and it's a persistent struggle that is the most destructive of all of them because it goes right to the heart of who we are. And it sets us against God, and it sets us against one another. It's a cycle that feeds itself with itself. Pride produces anxiety. (laughs) It produces anxiety when self is the source of the power. When everything is about self, then everything depends on self rather than on God. And yet, we are too finite to be trusted with our eternal souls. So why would you even go there? We are too finite to be trusted with our eternal souls. That pride will ultimately produce a cycle of confusion, disappointment, frustration, anger, bitterness, and anything else that harms us and stirs up that anxiety. And why did it say, God gives grace to the humble. Ah, that's so refreshing. That's where we break that cycle. It is humility that breaks that endless cycle because humility casts all that anxiety on God. He has enough power to take it. He has enough. His shoulders are broad enough to bear all that, you see. We cast all of our anxiety on God, remembering this, remembering that His loving care for us is what really matters. Because standing firm in our faith in Him is what enables us to resist the devil and receive more grace to endure suffering, to be restored, strong, and steadfast. Humility is in direct proportion to our trust in God's care for us, how much we know Him, how much we are assured that we are known by Him and loved by Him, that He is our living hope. Trust in the power of God's Spirit working in us and producing His fruit of self-control His self-control in us is what makes the difference in resisting the devil. It was interesting, when I was looking at this word self-control, it almost seems like it's contrary. You know, and it it takes us to, of course, we know that that is fruit of the Spirit. And if we are understanding the consistency between that terminology and the fruit of the Spirit and relying upon 
the Spirit of God and letting the Spirit of God control our life, then we have a better understanding of this meaning of self-control. Self-control is really, you see, giving up self-reliance. It's controlling that self-reliance. In other words, it's controlling the self-restraint. It's holding back self from the control so that God's Spirit takes control. So that we are brought safely home to God. This is what Peter has been leading up to and is the summary of all that hope in Christ. Humility is more than anything is is what clears our vision. Humility is what clears our vision to really see what grace is. To really be able to see what grace is and what true peace looks like. Which Peter shared in his, you know, salutation, that grace and peace be ours. He wants us to really know what that looks like. Humility opens our eyes to it better than anything else. Why does he say, and this is what I found interesting, because it wasn't just humility in general, it wasn't just humility toward God. He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why would he frame it that way? Our humility before God, our humility before God is tested most of all and shows up in our humility toward others made in the image of God. With our fallen nature, humility toward God is hard enough. But put other fallen creatures into the mix. It's like someone said, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're working with turkeys. Humility toward others takes more than, much more grace, much more grace. Then humility with God, who is very much our sovereign Lord. And again, that's why we need the grace of God's power poured into us. This is where the commandment, the great, this is where the great commandment is so helpful, I think, in this particular question. And why Jesus said the second is like it. The second one depends on the first, and it actually flows out of it. He took the first from Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second command comes from Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, 
You hear where Leviticus ties the second to the first. After each of the ways that he describes how we are to love one another, he says, I am the Lord. He attaches that at the end of each one. Or at the very beginning, he says, I am the Lord your God. I think there's a reason for that. I think in all of our relationships with one another, God wants us to keep him in mind in our relationship with him so that you see the love for our neighbor flows out of our love for God. It's like he's saying, will you do this for me? Do this for me. We love because we were first loved by God. We serve because Christ first served us and gave his life for us. Christ humbled himself for us. How can we do any less for one another? Especially considering that we are all in need of grace ourselves. So how can we not give grace and show humility to one another? Well, it takes grace, a lot of grace, a grace that God gives. Peter shows us where that starts and what that looks like when he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Again, it's a matter of trust. Who do you trust with your life and its outcome? Under whose hand do you feel the safest? That mighty hand of God is a picture of power and authority, and we can trust him with full humility, knowing that we are safe in his loving care. Picture it this way. I've seen a subordinate after a meeting in which a, you know, the CEO or whatever, the, the superior, obviously, was speaking, and afterwards the subordinate comes up to him and places his hand on his shoulder as he says something to him. And I cringed. <laughs> Never, ever appropriate. But it is quite acceptable and quite appropriate and often even encouraging when one who is an authority, whom you trust, who, 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 who has your back, puts a hand on your shoulder while speaking words of assurance from a position of power and authority. This is what empowers us most of all to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Trusting God fully Trusting God fully 
as though in each moment of testing, he puts his mighty hand on our shoulder, leans in, and quietly says, as he looks into your eye, I got this. I got this. Humility out of trust in him simply responds with a nod while saying, thank you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your mighty hand on us. That you remind us that you are there. That you are our source of power and authority so that we can live in quiet trust. Oh, Lord, by your Spirit in us, help us to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us and join us.